Christ in Relationships, his Dr. Joel Hunter series, and he continues with his eighth message, Rebuilding Us. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 26, and it reads as follows. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us, and received his portion in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which one of these two thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry, and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, we've been talking about what Christ puts into a relationship, our personal relationships, in order to build us for the kingdom of God, and, and what he calls out of a personal relationship in order to build us for the kingdom of God. And some of these messages are not uh, too bad to hear. I mean, they're kind of motivational. When you, <clears throat> when you hear about how we're authorized to bring on earth what has been designed in heaven, that's a, that's a pretty neat thing, you know, and it's, it's good to hear that. And uh, it's also good to hear uh, the spirit with which we are authorized to bring that, you know, the the tenderness and the mercy, and that's pretty regular stuff, and and we like to hear about that mercy stuff. It's not even too bad uh, to hear again and again that uh, we need to wait on the power of God so that what we do is by his power and, and actually him doing it rather than just ourselves. I mean, we can understand that. But in that life of Christ between Palm Sunday and the beginning of the church, there came a very painful time in the lives of the disciples. And this message will not be easy to hear. It was the time when they had to rebuild their lives after losing someone that they had loved very much. It was a time when they had to struggle to try to reconstruct the world missing someone that they thought they would always have. How do you do that? For what reason do you do it? And at what price do you do it? At the beginning of this, listen just to a little vignette in order to get us to the place where we can see the picture of someone trying to rebuild life.
Danny proposed to me in the moonlight. He called me his starlight girl and told me that I should never venture out before noon, but that I was born for twilight romances and soul-deep talks at midnight. Well, after we were married and had children, I started to see a few more sunrises than sunsets, but every once in a while we would sneak out to the porch at twilight and share a root beer and let our souls talk until midnight. Sometimes we get kind of silly and giggly, and one time we woke up our kids with our laughing. Well, they loved catching us in trouble like that. So we had to slink back up to our room under the stern eye of our oldest daughter, Elizabeth, and the wide-eyed bewilderment of our son, Jeremy. Elizabeth chided us for having excited Jeremy at this hour of the night. Jeremy was four years old and easily excitable. Well, once we got behind the door, we were shaking, trying not to laugh and heap more retribution on us by our kids. I think at that moment that I felt closer to Danny than I'd ever felt to anyone. Even in our simple life, our relationship felt like it was an adventure. I loved him. He died suddenly. I guess as big as his heart was, it just wasn't so strong. Elizabeth was ten years old, Jeremy was seven, and Christine was just turning five. And I just hadn't expected it. The five stages of grief, as they call them, moved slowly for me. There was... There is no way to replace what Danny was to me. His unique personality, mixed with mine, and set in that time and in those circumstances, was a gift. It was an unrepeatable gift that was gone in the way I knew it. And I saw the kids watching me, learning from me how to or how not to move on. I saw them struggling without Danny around. I saw their need for a father. I saw my own need for a husband. I've been married to Trevor for six years now. He's a good man. He loves me and the children, and he is a wonderful father. Oh, he's been right there for Jeremy especially. I knew that Jeremy was going to need that kind of discipline and a role model to get him through high school. I mean, he's a great kid, of course. Trevor says that he's high-strung, like a fine-tuned instrument. I prefer the term bratty. I know I could, I could never have handled him myself. But Trevor is so patient and so strong. He's a good, good man. I'm so blessed to have him as my husband and as a father to my children. I love him. But every once in a while, whenever the grocery store stocks a bottled kind, I pick up a root beer and I sneak out to the porch at twilight. life after you've lost someone that is absolutely irreplaceable I'm sorry six services I thought I could do it that was my mom's story that's where that came from it takes me back 
to the kind of pain she went through even when her life was being rebuilt. Now remember the cost of rebuilding. You know, there are several kinds of rebuilding after you've lost someone significant to you, depending on why you lost them. This is probably no accident that this message comes on Memorial Day weekend. It illustrates one of the ways that we lose people. And one of the reasons... When I watch those films about those guys going on the beach at Normandy, something really happens to me inside. I I grew up in a family where the military was very much a part of who we were, and and uh, I picture those guys, and I I just wonder what it would be like to storm a beach where it was very likely you were going to be dead. I I I wonder what it's like. Still today, when I look at these things, I wonder what it was like for their parents to hear they weren't coming home. Their wives, their children, to hear they'd been killed. What was it like to rebuild life? It must have been horribly difficult. Yet, in that circumstance, because they had died so that we could build the life that we needed, build the better life than we had, Rebuilding life in that circumstance was almost a tribute to them. It was almost a monument to the reason that they had died. And so, as tough as it was, at least there was some motivation, at least there was some reward to it. There's another circumstance. The circumstance is that when someone's just taken from us suddenly, I mean, there's no intention about it, there's no... There's no Premonition. There's nothing. They're just gone. Like Danny. You always thought you'd have them there. I mean, you didn't count on it. That anything like this could happen. You knew it in your head, but you never really considered it. And then they're not there anymore. Rebuilding life after that is more difficult. Because you can't replace any human being. And because... You are in such disorientation. I mean, it's just so hard. And so you go on. Because in every case, there are people depending on you to rebuild life. Like those kids. But there's that constant thought. What would life have been like? Have they not died? It's always there. Somebody once penned the words, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. But there's a third kind that's even more difficult. And that is, how do you rebuild life after you have counted on someone, you have invested in them, They have become the major part of your existence, and then by their own choice, they walk away. They betray what you thought you had, and you discover what you thought you had was not what they had. The kind of love you thought you shared was not the kind of love 
that they thought you shared. That's what the disciples had to do when they lost Jesus. That's what the disciples had to do, watch this, when they lost Judas. You know, everybody talks about how hurt Jesus must have been to watch Judas betray him. Very few people think how rough it was for the disciples to rebuild life after losing Judas. Let me tell you why it was probably more difficult for them. First of all, let's read the passage. This is after the resurrection. But before the Holy Spirit has come in fullness on the church. Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 15. And at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. Now consider this next verse and all that it means. For he was counted among us and received his portion in this ministry. In other words, he was a part of us. He had a portion of our hearts. And then there's a little parenthetical editorial comment. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakaldema, that is, field of blood. Peter continues, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. It is therefore necessary, remember those words, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, That the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. They put forward two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, that was his Roman name, and Matthias. They prayed and said, Thou, O Lord, knowest the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two thou hast chosen. You see, this is according to God's plan. There will be twelve sitting on the throne to judge Israel. And so therefore there must be twelve. And so they believed that God had already chosen one of the two. They just didn't know which one. And the Bible says, Show which one of these thou hast chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. This is the last time they ever did this in the New Testament. This is Old Testament practice to find the will of God. But after the Holy Spirit came in its fullness, this was not necessary anymore. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. <clears throat> what is it like to rebuild life 
after someone has betrayed you? Why is it necessary? First of all, let me talk about Judas. He figures such a prominent place in this. As a matter of fact, we would be remiss if we did not consider his life and how miserable it was because no matter how miserable it is to be the betrayed, it's more miserable to be the betrayer. I know sometimes you don't believe that. I know sometimes it doesn't seem like that's accurate, but it is. I say this just in passing to any of you who right now are thinking about walking out on somebody who loves you and depends upon you. I want you to take note from this Bible passage. There is no amount of money worth walking out on somebody who loves you. Judas got 30 pieces of silver. It could have been 30 million. It wouldn't have been enough. And the betrayer always senses too late that truth. There is no amount of popularity with those people you think are in power that is enough. It will never be enough. There is no amount of freedom that you think you're going to have after you leave these people who are so dependent on you. There's no amount of freedom that's worth what you will do in that betrayal. Judas knew it. He knew it when he went to his own place because he found his own place was hell. I don't mean just the literal theological hell. I mean total aloneness. I mean not ever being able to find what you had been made for. That's hell. But if it's that horrible for the betrayer, how horrible is it for the betrayed? Well, you tell me because you've been through it. You know what it's like. I know many of your lives, and I know what you've been through. You know what it's like. To have someone in your life one day tell you that no matter what you do, you're not enough for them. No matter who you are, you're not enough. No matter what you try to provide, it's not enough. I've seen that so many times in relationships. And it's, it's always devastating. I remember one time, literally, sitting in a family where the father had decided that he would do the thing of integrity and set and tell his family why he was leaving. And he had rehearsed this talk. And you got to give it. To someone who's thinking of leaving, they think about it so long, it makes sense to them. It's logical. The reasons sound solid. They sound good. And so here he was talking about, he just didn't feel the same, and, and he wasn't going to lead an artificial life and, and, and have a sham for a marriage and so on and so forth and, and so he was trying to do the thing of honesty his family just sat there in absolute devastation and I'll never forget his little boy 
This little boy just sat there and kept saying over and over again, aren't we enough for you? Daddy, aren't we enough? He never answered the question with his mouth. That's how all of us feel when somebody leaves us. We come to the realization that for many, we're not enough. And so we're left there with the necessity of rebuilding life. And the first thing most people do in a situation like that is they begin to blame themselves for being so hurt. Can you believe that? I mean, people really do that. They say, I should have known this. I never should have gotten this close. I should have seen it coming for years. Now I look back and I see the patterns. Don't do that to yourself. (laughs) Please don't do that to yourself. Only God knows when that's going to happen and if it's going to happen. Only God knows. In this situation, Jesus knew that it was going to happen. It says in John 6, verse 70, Have I not chosen you twelve, all of you? Yet one of you is a devil. Jesus predicted repeatedly that Judas would betray him. He knew it. But listen to this. None of the other disciples ever had an inkling. Can you believe that? They worked with this man in the presence of the living God for three years. They were filled up personally with all that Jesus could teach them, and they still didn't know. Still, at the end, Jesus was saying, one of you will betray me, and every one of them was saying, Lord, is it I? And the earlier we learn it, the better off we are. Is that the only truly dependable one in this life is God. I don't care how much people love you or how faithful they are or how much character they have. It is not wise to put all of your faith in someone's physical presence or even the greatest portion of it. Listen to this. As I say this to you, this will make sense to you. If Jesus would not allow His physical presence to be the focus of the hope of the disciples, why would He allow anyone's physical presence to be the focus of our hope? Jesus said himself, listen to this, in John 16, verse 7. He said this to the disciples. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying that the way the world is designed, it's actually an improvement to not depend on someone's physical presence, even the physical presence of Jesus. Why? Because God's teaching us the lesson that He's the one we need to depend upon. He's our best friend. And the earlier we know that, the better off we are. Remember that old hymn, Be Still, My Soul? Listen to the words, The Lord is on thy side. 
bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Lesson number two. He wants us to understand that we were put here to have compassion on other people. It is one of the cruel ironies of this life filled with sin that we can never ultimately sympathize, never ultimately empathize, never have godly, Christ-like compassion until we've felt what it was like to be abandoned and rejected and crushed. That's when we are of the most use. That's when we can understand the best. That's when we, as, as Hebrews says, can be the Christ ministry to someone else. It would be wonderful if we could sit down with someone who had just gone through absolute devastation, having never gone through it ourselves, and say, I understand. But it's simply not true. I can sympathize. No, you can't. But when you've hung on by a thread, when those words of Christ, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know the poor in spirit? The ones absolutely crushed with no earthly resource that does them any good. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's when you understand the best. I heard a story the other night. Somebody said they went to this passion play. Many of you have seen this, the passion play. Uh, I think it's held in the Dakotas. It's also held in Germany. Uh, but for those of you who haven't, it's a, it's a play about uh, the last days of Christ and what He went through for us. And one night, the person who played Christ was so authentic and so Christ-like. I mean, He was giving His life in that thing. And, and there were two men in the audience from Broadway, and they... They were so moved by this, this portrayal. And they watched this, this man drag this heavy cross across the stage, almost crushed beneath its weight. And at the end, the actor was so exhausted, so drained, so tired, he could hardly come out for his appearance. They made their way backstage into his dressing room, and he sat literally slouched over in absolute exhaustion. And they said, we want you to come do that on Broadway. We'll get you big audiences for this. And they started listing all of the benefits, you know, of what it would be like to work for them on Broadway. And, and, and they got to the end and they said, and, and you know what? We can make a cross that is so light you can lift it with one finger. This man who had betrayed Christ. This man who had given his authentic 
portrayal of what Christ went through, lifted his head and looked at the men and said this. Don't ever forget these words. Unless I feel the weight of the cross, I cannot play the part of the Christ. You understand that? You understand why God allows us to suffer as we do? Because only then can we be authentic in our ministry for Christ. And the third reason sounds a little silly, but I believe it's true. The people who understand why it's necessary to go on and go on for those reasons are, in my estimation, the heroes of this world. I think God builds everyday heroes. As a matter of fact, when I look out here, I see a number of everyday heroes. The Bible says, let another man take his office. In Greek, the word for office comes from the word episcopus, which means overseer. In other words, the reason that that office has to be fulfilled is because they're responsible for somebody else. That is always the reason you rebuild life. It's never for you. It's never so that you'll feel better. Let me give you a secret about pain. It goes on no matter what you do. You know what? People don't understand that. It hurts the same no matter what. Pain can crush you or it can strengthen you. It hurts the same. It's your choice what to do with it. Pain can cripple you or it can sharpen you. It hurts the same no matter what. It's just our choice what to do with it. It hurts the same. Pain hurts. And so, the people who go on will not go on because the pain has ceased. They'll go on because there's a greater reason to go on. And all of us need a greater reason than ourselves. We're not built, believe it or not, in this culture... The reason this culture is so lost and so empty is because we weren't built to live for ourselves. We were built to live for other people who needed us. That's how God wired us. You know who the heroes are in this world? (laughs) I'll tell you who they're not. They're not guys like me. They're not guys who have everything. I mean... I'm grateful for what I got, and it's a blessing every day, but there's no heroism to it. I've got a wife who I'm crazy nuts about. There's no heroism to that. To stay married to her, that doesn't cost me a thing. I've got kids who love Jesus. There's no heroism to raising my kids. Good heavens. I've got a job I'd sell pencils to do. There's no heroism in that. Who wouldn't change places with somebody like that? No. When it comes right down to it, guys like me aren't the hero. It's people like you. There are people who struggle every day of their marriages. And they don't get better. But the people just keep hanging in there. And it doesn't make sense to the world. But it makes sense to them because they've made a a vow before God and they're not going to break it. Those are the heroes. I know a gal Saturday night came up. She said, you know, Joel, I I watched my father 
take care of my mother for so many years. She was an invalid for so many years. And I watched this guy go out and work hard at a job every day. And every night he came home. And as soon as he hit the door, he was taking care of my mother long into the night. He didn't get the sleep he needed. It was absolutely wearing him down. And year after year he did that. Night after night he did it. And I was growing up as a teenager, and I just didn't understand it. It came to the place where she didn't know him anymore. She had completely lost her mind. And he took care of this, this physical body that just kept going on and did everything for this physical body. And I looked at him, and I said, Dad, why don't you just put her in a nursing home? She doesn't even know who you are. He looked at her, and he said, Honey, I made a vow before God. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in hell. And I'm in it. She said, there's my hero. Heroes in this world aren't the people who have both of you to take care of those kids. Good heavens, I know what taking care of kids is like. It's like a constant wrestling match. It is. Except when you got two parents in the home, it's like tag team wrestling. It is. Because when one gets tired, they can go over and tag the other, and the other can go and wrestle for a while. It's what it is. You know who my heroes are. You single parents. I don't know how you do it. Becky and I say almost every week, how do they do it? I don't know how my mom did it when she raised me as long as she did alone. Good heavens. What a curse on this poor woman. <laughs> but there are parents, single parents, who have no one to turn to. And their kids can just go up and just go absolutely crazy. But yet they don't give up. They say, well, this one's gone. and I'm not going to give up on this one. And they keep on going. Let me tell you something. And you already know this. Those guys that sacrificed their lives on the beach at Normandy are no bigger heroes than those single parents that fight the wars of laundry piles and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Their pain just got over a little bit quicker. God bless you for continuing to go on because it's necessary to oversee those people. I, I, I'm, I'm not a hero for sticking with my job. I don't know what it's like to be unemployed. I've never not had a job. But I know some of you for weeks and months. You went to your work. You thought you were a part of a team. And one day you show up and they said, we don't need you anymore. And you go home and you look at this family who depends upon you. And you're okay with them, but you're humiliated and embarrassed and you feel worthless. And then when you can't get another job right away, those feelings of worthlessness just keep coming to you. And you think to yourself, you know, they'd be better off without me. But you don't leave. 
You hang in there. You're heroes. I'm telling you. You're heroes. Because it is necessary that someone fulfills that office of overseer. And you've stepped forward. God bless you for that. Well, I want to encourage you in this last part. Believe it or not, this is an encouragement sermon. It doesn't feel like it, does it? I want to encourage you to go on. I know some of you are in pain. I know some of you consider quitting every day. You consider quitting life. You consider quitting ever trying again. You say, I, I can't stand this. You know, I just want to fold up the tents and wait till it all goes by. I just want to go along. I don't want to love again. I don't want to work again. I don't want to invest myself in anything again. I don't want to. I just want to drift until my time's up. I know that's what you say. But I want to encourage you to go through with the plan of God and to invest yourself back into a team that will build what God has in mind in your world and in this world. I know it's tough, but I want to do it. You say, how can I do that? I don't know. I don't. I I wish I had the answer. The only thing I can tell you is do what's necessary for today. That's all they did. Well, how do we do this? Well, we know enough to pick another apostle. Okay, how do we do that? Well, let's cast lot. You know, let's put somebody... Well, let's do that, see? They just went ahead with what they knew to do. You know, sometimes when you face this impenetrable barrier, it's not so impenetrable. It's not. It's not as formidable as you think it is. I heard a story once about a golfer who, who hit a ball in the middle of the woods. It came in the clearing, but it was in the middle of a forest. And he finally tracked the thing down, and he looked back toward the fairway. And there was this line of trees, solid. And he thought, what am I going to do? He couldn't hit it between the trunks. It would take him 15 shots to get it in. I mean, he kept chipping, you know. This old caddy came up behind him. He'd been in that course many years. Old caddy came up behind him and said this. He said, you know, the tops of trees is 80% space. Hit it as if there were no trees. I want to encourage you to do the same thing. When you're facing a barrier, hit it as if there were no barrier. 80% isn't bad odds. Go for it. And if you hit a tree, hit it again like there were no trees. Just keep doing what you know to do. And God will make a way. And I also want to encourage you not to lower your standards. Do you notice that the disciples didn't say... Well, we've failed with Judas. Let's just take the most willing one. Let's take the happiest one. We need a real upper here. Let's take the most supportive one. Let's take the most encouraging one. No. They said, you know who we choose from? We choose from the people who have been with us from the very beginning. They didn't lower their standards one inch. Could I encourage you? Some of you think, man, I have failed. I've got no right to have standards anymore. I've sinned big time. Who am I to have standards? You're a child of God. That's who you are. And your plan F is still God's plan A. You deserve what all of the rest of us deserve. 
Those who are in Jesus Christ are just sinners who've admitted it. That's who you are. I don't deserve any more than you do. And my standards are high. Could I encourage you not to lower your standards? Choose from those people to rebuild your life who you idolize, who you, uh, that's probably a poor word, but you look up to. I don't mean idolize. I don't mean that. I mean you look up to. You need to laugh bad, don't you? I understand. Me too. Choose from the greatest possible source of friends for building the kingdom. Choose Christians. Be not unequally yoked. And start building. And one more thing. As you're building, remember this. The hope in all of this is that as we learn to love God, as we learn to depend upon God, and as we learn not to invest our heart in one person, we become a lot more effective and a lot less killable. You know what? Life in the resurrection is wonderful. Even for those who wanted to hug Jesus... Even for Mary Magdalene, who in Jesus' resurrection body, she went for him and she just wanted to hold on to him. And Jesus said, don't cling to me. You know why? Because even then, Jesus was saying that when you invest your life in someone physically, that's a danger. You see, the physical Jesus was killable. The spiritual Jesus isn't. Loving one person, you're killable. Loving Christians, loving God, and bringing one special person into that mix makes you a lot less killable. That's spiritual maturity. That's why God gives us a church to love. That's why God gives us Christian friends. So let me challenge you. Some of you, have already put up a wall and you say, I'm never going to do this again. I'm shutting down. Not going to love again like I loved. Not going to try to build the world. I used to be idealistic. Well, now I'm realistic. Don't do that. God wants all of you. He doesn't want you to lose your hope. doesn't want you to lose your faith. He wants you to go on and do what's necessary. And that includes loving fully. And that includes building with all your strength in the power of God. Pray with me. Lord, as, he, as we hear this, this song that, that really tells what I've been trying to say, that says it even better, please melt our hearts to love again. And... Give us the idealism that we need to have to fully invest ourselves into building your world a better world. Please help us that the pain that we have been through and some of us are still going through would not be wasted, but it would be put to good use. We pray in Jesus' name.